0: because God's love has poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Well, when Jonathan Edwards was preaching early on in the in American history, he was preaching the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and while he was preaching that, it was right after that preaching was when the kind of the great awakening started. Uh, I'm not proposing that maybe perhaps our preaching through it means that another great awakening is going to start. But I, I think that this content produces something great. Uh, it's, it's even told that when he preached his famous or infamous, depending on who you are, sinners in the hands of an angry God, that, that people actually left that place, that it was said, with cheerfulness. And so you'd think, like here, they're, they're coming under the dread of knowing the wrath that they're under before God because of their sin, but they're leaving with cheerfulness because he's talking about the truth of the gospel, that, that we're not just condemned Uh, to live under the wrath of God, but that one came to rescue us, to deliver us from that wrath, and that we can be justified, made right in his sight, counted as righteous by our faith in him. And so people left with a sense of cheerfulness. Now, perhaps in that moment, the, the beginning of the benefits of justification by faith alone were being experienced by those people in their cheerfulness. And that's what Paul does invite people into uh, as he continues to talk about this this great doctrine, this great truth of the gospel, that we are justified and made right in the sight of God, not based upon our works or the law or some sign or seal. We are justified, made right in God's sight by our faith in the one who is perfectly righteous, Jesus Christ. And he invites believers in chapter 5. He starts inviting them into uh, calling all the justified into the, the benefits, the, the fruit, the goodness of of justification by faith alone. And so he calls the justified to rejoice in hope and rejoice in hope in sufferings. Paul doesn't want any of the Roman Christians that he writes to or any of his readers of this text to have some sort of, again, theoretical commitment to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, to to not actually appropriate it in their lives, but to not only know it, but to live in light of it, to have it change them and transform them, to experience the benefits on a day-to-day basis. He doesn't want to miss them to miss out on, on enjoying all of the fruit of justification. So he invites them into those benefits by explaining some of them for them. In verse 1 in chapter 5, he says, uh, Romans 5, my bookmark was in 2 Corinthians, 5 of, chap- of Romans, chapter w- verse 1, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Justified again, we don't want to overlook the the fact that before a holy God, sinners can be counted as righteous before him by their faith in Jesus. And and he gives us a stark word here that stands out to us that that gives us the idea of how the, the depth of the greatness of justification. He says, We have peace with God, peace with God. Now, peace is easily confused in our world where it's said to be found in like the zen of a room. Or some sort of transcendental meditation. Or an oil that you put in a diffuser. Uh, that's not the kind of peace Paul's talking about. Uh, I have on my shelf a book called War and Peace. right? And I checked, I have 100 pages in, so I haven't read it. But 100 pages gives me reason to be able to say I have it on my shelf, right? And what's before peace? War. And in this word that we have, peace with God, it rightly recognizes... That there has been something to get us to that peace. There has been war. There's been enmity. In, in chapter one, he, he talks about the wrath of God that's been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's starting in chapter one, verse 18. Who what do they do? These these are all men, they suppress the truth. They lack acknowledging God the way he deserves, they lack the thankfulness to God that he deserves. They exchange the glory of God for the glory of created things over the creator. And in chapter 2, there's, there's the self-righteous who are judging. They're self-seeking. They lack obedience to the truth. They reject actual obedience to the law, though they claim it. In chapter 3, Paul is really clear. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. That the mouths of these people are mouths that, that spit forth venom. They're, they're mouths of wicked speech. And he says there's no fear of God in them. That's the war that Paul's talking about. The the war is sinful humanity against the holy, good God who created them. It's sinful humanity giving God the stiff arm. It's sinful humanity rejecting God in the good world that he created. But the good news came too. He didn't stop in chapter 3. He says, but now righteousness has been revealed. There's good news. There's justification. There's righteousness. There's right standing available by faith in Jesus. That If you put your trust in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, then the war is over. And you have peace with God. That's the benefit of justification. There's peace with God. And Christian, that's your story now. We were those who were once enemies with God who are now at peace with God. We were once under God's wrath and now we have peace with God through Jesus. I love the prophets, right? Isaiah says that there's no peace for the wicked. But the gospel says that the unrighteous are counted as righteous through faith in Jesus. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, prophets, they they both warn of of people saying, peace, peace, where there's no peace. But Paul can say in chapter 5, verse 1 of Romans, that there is certain peace. Peace with God says that something has happened. There is actual peace. How? Because he doesn't speak of peace through any means. He doesn't say you have peace, peace through works. Peace, peace because of the law. Peace, peace because of circumcision. He says you have peace through Jesus. This is the one... Chapter 4, verse 25, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus' death and resurrection showed that not only has uh, animosity, enmity ceased, that's kind of the negative side of it, but now on the other side, there's there's positive, there's relationship with God restored. And so we have peace with God. It says that God is not against us anymore, that God is actually for us, and it flows from justification. God is not indifferent towards us, He's not neutral for us, toward us anymore, He is actually For us, that's the truth of the gospel. That's what this peace is. It's a status of relationship that we now have with God through our faith in justification, through our faith in Jesus. That's the justification that Jesus offers. That's why Paul can say with certainty, because he knows Jesus was delivered up, because he knows that he was raised, he can say with certainty that we have it. We're not trying to get it. We have it. He's not describing here in this peace with God an inner feeling that's subjective and can come and go based on, again, maybe the zen of the room or whatever. He's talking about an objective state of relationship with God because of Jesus, through Jesus Christ. So whether you feel peace with God or not, if you have faith in Jesus, if you've been justified, and you have peace with God. And that you can know now that the war is truly over for you, that God is for you. He's not against you anymore. It speaks of the exchange of the status we received because of the work of Jesus. And he continues that it's also through Jesus that he says, not only do we have peace with God, but verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Uh, My brother-in-law used to work downtown Enid, and he worked in Independence Tower And we used to go there often, sometimes I eat in the restaurant that was down the the first floor, and we never got to go up to the top, but we knew he worked there, and we were there during a work day one time, and we're like, I wonder if he's here, and if we can go up there, and sure enough, he comes down, and he helps us go to the top, like, you can't get to the top, or you used not to be able to, I don't know if you can now. Without pushing the right, there's a certain button that you push to get to the next, you know, the upper floors. And then even then, even if we could figure that out on our own, like we couldn't have gone into an office, into his office, and, and checked out the views of, of gorgeous Enid from the top of Independence Tower. But because he worked there, he gave us access to something that we never had access before. before. It was possible the views of, of again, beautiful Enid were possible uh, in a way that were never accessible to us before because of his access that he granted to us. And in the same way, Paul's talking about access that we have before God, through Jesus. Like, he has granted us access that we didn't have access to before. We couldn't have earned it, we couldn't have deserved it, we couldn't have worked our way into it, have climbed the stairs up to it, it wasn't there, but now we stand in it. The only access in the book of Romans that one has before God, as those who have fallen short of the glory of God, is God's just condemnation. That's the access we have before God. But through Jesus, there's access into this realm of grace. You have this grace in which you stand in. It's the only place of God's favor where God is for you and not against you. It's the only place where there's actual peace with God. It, it, I think what he's talking about in the first part of verse 2 is, is similar to what he says in Colossians 1.13. Where he says, God himself has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Like Jesus has delivered us from that place of condemnation that we deserve, that we did have access to because of our sinful state, and he has transferred us now into this realm of grace. We have now have access to God through this grace in which we stand. That's the place where Paul says Christians, he says, now stand. They stand there by faith. And when we hear that word stand, we need to hear a sense of deep-rootedness, of firmness, like, like you're standing there. One uh, commentator says this, And by the word stand, he means that faith is not a changeable persuasion, only for one day, but that it's immutable, it's unchangeable, you're you're there. And it's by faith, Paul says, that you stand there. And again, we need to be reminded of the most important aspect of faith. It's not the intensity of our faith. It's not the strength of our faith. It's not the purity of our faith that's the most important. It's the object of our faith. And and what is the standing in this realm of grace? Where does it come from? It comes through Jesus. That's the object of our faith. And so we stand, and it's immutable because of him. And with that deep rootedness of faith, because we're standing there through Jesus, while standing, we're also doing something else. Verse 2 continues, We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We we have normally pretty flimsy views of what hope is. Hope is thought of as as kind of wishful thinking, which is very fragile, very flimsy, and not Paul's idea at all. Paul's idea of hope is is a strong confidence. Like He he has real confidence and assurance in these things. It's it's less like, hey, I I hope I'm going to do well in that test, I hope we're going to win the big game. I hope I get that job promotion. I hope I get that commercial, the the car that's on the commercial for Christmas. And more like how we sit in school. When we sat in school, uh, the bells would ring at the, you know, whatever hour was the next class, right? And it, it was literally like clockwork, like every time on that minute, the bell would ring and you would move. And so while you're in that class, what you can do is you can have hope. It's not wishful thinking. Every day you go through this, you know the bell's going to ring, and then you're going to get up and you're going to change positions, right? So you, you have hope in the midst of that class. Like that maybe the lecture is boring and not what you'd hoped, but you can have hope in the midst of that. The bell is coming. It's just there. It's in the future. It's just stretching its way back into the classroom. and gives present hope. It gives confidence. Like I know this isn't going to last forever. There's a sense of surety in that. That kind of hope is firm hope. So Paul says that's the kind of hope we have. And that's the kind of hope that can be rejoiced in. There can be joyful confidence in this life. We can rejoice in hope, and we're rejoicing in something, so we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's what our firmness and our confidence is. It's in the glory of God. The the glory of God is God's beauty, God's goodness, God's holiness, God's greatness put on display. Which is why when the psalmists talk about it in Psalm 19, that the heavens can declare it. Because we can see the greatness of God on display in the things that he has made. And so it's this beauty that's on display. Humanity was designed to reflect, as image bearers, designed to reflect the the beauty and the goodness and the greatness of God as his image bearers. But what happened to us? In in chapter 1, verse 23 of Romans, he says that we've exchanged the glory of God for the glory of other things instead of being who God created us humans to be, and glorying in God, worshiping God, thanking God, living a life of praise to God, we have exchanged that glory for the glory of created things, idols. The glory shining in the creatures, people, these things designed by God as good, who were who made to know God and love God and walk in the garden with God, has now been exchanged. And so that Paul can say that now, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what was exchanged in chapter 1, what was fallen short of in chapter 3, is now the object of hope here in chapter 5. The the object of rejoicing here in verse 2 is the hope of the glory of God. And that is now the hope because of chapter 4, verse 25. Jesus was the one who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Okay, so now there's restored hope in the glory of God. Those who are justified by faith then have this sure destination, this sure place that they're going, and the glory of God with His holiness on display in their lives and all around them. It'll be displayed certainly in the consummation, the end of all of redemptive history, where all things are put in right order by this God. It'll be put on display and be finally and fully realized in the salvation of those who have put their trust in Christ. Because on that day, here's what's going to happen. We're going to be transformed. People who have been justified by faith, who trust in Jesus, are transformed into his image. Amen. Like, so, what he's going to say in chapter 8, verse 29 is that currently we're all being conformed to the image of Jesus. We won't be conformed any longer, it'll be completed. We won't be, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. There won't be any more conforming. There won't be any more transforming. Instead, it will be what 1 John talks about in chapter 3, verse 2. And he says, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That's the hope of the glory of God. Matthew Henry, you, you may have heard this name. He, he's written a, almost a full Bible commentary that you can get. It was a constant companion to people like George Whitfield and others. His dad, his name was Philip, he was a minister in England, and and he married a woman who was an heiress to a large estate. And her father, when they were going to get married, was not a huge fan of the proposal and not a huge fan of them getting married, because he was saying, nobody knows where this guy Philip came from. To which she replied, true, but I know where he is going, and I should like to go with him. What a beautiful thing! Like you need to know that before you go into marriage. Like you need to step those through those things, right? Like you need to know where that person's going and that you want to go with them. That's a great way to respond. But here's wisdom in this: like we need to know that there's a destination. No one may know where you're from, but if you're justified, we know your destination. And you're going to be like him because you're going to see him as he is. Our origins, if we collected them together in this room, are from all over. But by faith in Jesus, our destination is the glory of God. And so we rejoice in hope. There are times when our days are going to look more like Abraham in chapter 20, where he's being deceitful and handing over his wife. More than, say, 22, where he's trusting God and walking up the mountain to put his son to death, should the Lord have him do it. There's going to be times when our days look more like the bad day than the good day. But we stand in grace with the sure destination of the glory of God. And so Paul says we rejoice in hope. The benefit of rejoicing in hope of the glory of God, it only comes through our justification by faith alone. It comes through Jesus. And through that justification, we can know we have a clear and final destination. And so with that firm confidence in the glory of God and the destination clear for those who are justified by faith, Paul is going to take it up a notch, and actually he's kind of going further into this hope that we have. So we rejoice in hope, but he goes even further and says more than that. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. The justified, those who have faith in Jesus, have the benefit of rejoicing in hope, knowing their destination is clear and in front of them, and they have the benefit of rejoicing in hope in sufferings. The rejoicing here isn't just for the future, right? You rejoice in hope, and you think maybe, like, that's a rejoicing of what the future is going to be. The rejoicing is in sufferings, which are very present, right? The present is lit up with sufferings. It's full of sufferings. It's sufferings. It's plural here. That's reality. You know, like you wonder why we have, it's easy probably, I'm guessing, is it easy to come up with songs that speak of suffering? That they're everywhere. Because Christians have been dealing with this forever, right? Like since, the, the people of God have always been a people who have suffered. And so the songs are, are everywhere. They're in the scripture, they're outside the scripture, it's like there's lots of songs of suffering. Maybe good or bad depending on how they take those sufferings, but there's plenty of songs of suffering. Because it's part of reality. Now, I love this quote, it's one of my favorite quotes. It's from Spurgeon, it says, there's hardship in everything except eating pancakes. <laughs> and I looked this up and like, man, like this is the best of the internet right here, like I didn't, I was just looking up the quote to make sure I got it right, and sure enough this little image cropped up. Um, so that's, that's C.H. Spurgeon there. I, I, one time I asked my kids, I think, I don't know if it was Anna or Reed or both of them, but I'm like, hey man, what's something you've heard from, from me? preaching. And one of the things that they could remember really clearly is like, I remember one time you talked about pancakes. So, like, so this might be the highlight of your sermon for, for most of you. This might be some of you all that you get, but at least I will have in- introduced you to, to Spurgeon. So th- he says there's hardship in everything except eating pancakes. And, and Paul says that there's, there's some positive rejoicing in the midst of sufferings that are very present, right? They're, they're everywhere. Now, everything outside of pancakes is hard and is full of sufferings. And Paul says, positively, we can rejoice in those. Paul doesn't say that as one who's naive or ignorant to suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul just lists a few of his sufferings. Verse 23. He says that he's had imprisonments, countless beatings been often near death five times he received from the hand of the Jews 40 lashes less one three times i was beaten with rods once i was stoned three times i was shipwrecked a night and a day i was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers danger from danger from robbers danger from my own people danger from gentiles danger in the city danger in the wilderness danger at sea danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger And thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul says rejoice in sufferings. He's not ignorant about what sufferings could look like. He knows what it could look like. He feels that. He's, I mean, beaten with rods, stoned, left for dead, like, Look at all the dangers, he says. But notice that he also didn't give a narrow definition of what that suffering was. He, he describes like what we would call kind of some major suffering. Being stoned seems pretty major. He, he also describes some things that are small. There are times when he uses just, just hunger. And we don't know. It could have been great hunger. He could have been almost on the verge of, of passing out. Or it could have just been like, man, I'm hungry today. He describes things that are physical. And also, did you notice the things that are internal? pressure, anxiety of the churches, and so he puts all of those sufferings into the category of things that can be rejoiced in, all of it, in chapter 5 he says we rejoice in sufferings, now that word in could say, could be telling us it's circumstantial, that is to say we, we can rejoice in the midst of our sufferings. And that's certainly true. Paul has said that other places, right? Re- rejoice in the Lord always. Give thanks in all circumstances. We know that. James tells us to, to count it joy when we face trials of various kinds. Again, he doesn't define trials. Just they're various. But I think the word in there is more likely to be understood as ob- the object of our rejoicing. So when he says, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. He's not to say in the midst of our suffering. We rejoice in the sufferings themselves, in chapter 5, verse 11, he says this. He says, we rejoice in God. I mean, very similar structure, but what's it in? It's, the object is God. And in verse 3, the, the rejoicing is in sufferings. How do you do that? Like, is Paul a masochist? Like, Does he just find a lot of pleasure in pain? And he wants us to share that same pleasure and pain and says, like, you guys need to rejoice in this too? No, what I think is we find something better. Paul... He speaks of his actual sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11, which were brutal and often. But notice how he describes them in in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says of his sufferings. He says this light momentary affliction, same word, sufferings, is preparing for us an eternal weight of Glory. Notice how he described them? We just read them. They're brutal and often stone, beaten with rods, lashes, stone. I mean, it doesn't sound light and momentary. But in chapter 4, he's saying that light and momentary affliction. How is it? Because he knows. These things are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are Eternal. Paul is a man that he says we can rejoice in our sufferings, in them, because he knows his destination. There's an eternal weight of glory. We're, we have a destination, it's the glory of God. That's where we're going. He knows his destination, and he knows that in the midst of that, his sufferings then aren't a hindrance to that destination. His sufferings aren't in the way. They're preparation. They're preparing something for him. The same is true for the way he talks about sufferings in Romans chapter 5. These sufferings, we can rejoice in them. And what does he say in verse 3? Knowing, knowing that suffering produces something. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance. For, for the ladies who are studying Revelation, that, that word endurance is the same one found in Revelation 13. Revelation 14 where it says this is a call for the endurance of the saints. Endurance is this capacity to hold out. The, the, what you need to bear up under sufferings, that's endurance. In the, the series, Band of Brothers, uh, great series. If you don't have it, Aaron has Blu-ray of it. Uh, on D-Day, Easy Company, which is the kind of the they're following them in this series, in Band of Brothers, um, or in the book. You can read the book as well. Uh, Easy Company drops from the sky and then they are tasked with taking out a German battery. And so at 11.30 on D-Day, Easy Company with 12 men, they destroyed a German battery overlooking Utah Beach where where many were landing as the war got started on D-Day. Now, that sounds like, man, all right, great detail, but this was after they had had little sleep as they're preparing and then flying to be dropped into France. This was after they actually did the jump I mean, can you, know, you know the experience of what that was like. They, they jump out of a plane in the midst of all that's going on, and then they march from 1.30 a.m. all the way up to 11.30 when this mission was complete. So we're, we're talking a substantial amount of, of effort, and they were able to do it because they had great endurance. You know where they got that endurance? There's this infamous name of their company, and his name is Sobel. Sobel was the one who trained them, and no one liked him. No one wanted him to travel with them. And actually, he didn't go with them and lead them on that day. But he was the one that had prepared them for that day. He got them ready. No one liked him. He was a strict disciplinarian. He was the, the hardest out of all the other companies. This man was training them and was working them over the hardest. And, and in a ways, they always thought, like, this guy is a jerk. Maybe he was. That's not up to me. But no one liked him. But the difficulty that he, that he put them through... The suffering that he made them endure, gave them what they needed to endure on that day, to go with little sleep, to jump out of a plane, to march from one thirty all the way through 11.30 and with 12 men take a German battery. Suffering forms us. It molds, right? Like like Easy Company was molded into the company they needed to be in a discipline standpoint in order to endure the horrors of D-Day. And for those who are justified by their faith, with a clear destination of the glory of God in view, it forms us with the capacity to hold out for that glory to come. Let's remember that the destination is also worth it. Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that it's preparing for him an eternal weight of glory. That it's glory beyond comparison. All of his major sufferings, he says, not worth comparing with the glory that I'm going to receive. And that actually those sufferings are preparing me for more of that. And so we can remember, if we have peace with God, that our suffering is worth it. And that we can actually rejoice in it. We also know we have peace with God, right? The the war uh, that's going on is not between God and us anymore. That's been settled in Christ, the one who was delivered up for us and raised for our justification. So those who have peace with God, the sufferings that we endure are not punitive. They're not against us. They're actually working for us. They're producing something. They're forming something. And, And we know of those who have hope in glory of God it's, it's forming us along those lines. It, it's floor, floor, forming us in light of that. It's moving us in that direction. Listen to what he says as the kind of the train of thought continues. Suffering produces endurance, in verse 4. And endurance produces character. You, you might have heard the, the comment, people say this a lot, like, you don't know what you're capable of until you just go through it. You don't know how hard something is, but when you go through it's like, man, I didn't know I could do that. Climb a mountain or... Study that hard and do that well on a test, or whatever it may be. You, you can hear that a lot. You don't know what you're capable of until you go through it. And, and that's what's saying, that's what he's saying here. Like endurance produces something, character. That, that character is a, a knowledge. Like, I can hold out. I can bear up. I, I can handle this that comes before me. I, I remember when we were practicing basketball when I was in high school, the coach he would take us and he would have the, the whoever was left, he did the, the five were out there, and he'd, he'd give everybody would be double-teamed. Right? So the practice squad would double-team them, and it was full-court press. Everyone double-teamed the whole time. Right? That was hard. Like it, it made us work and figure things out that we wouldn't have known before. But, but when we got in the game and people were full-court pressing us, when it was only five-on-five, on five, we felt that we, had some, we have some character now. Right? We, we know that we can do this. We did it against ten. Surely we can handle this against five. And that's what endurance does. It produces that sense of character. But notice again that character isn't the end. Right? So sufferings aren't the end. We're not just rejoicing in sufferings just for suffering's sake. We're not just rejoicing in sufferings because they produce endurance or that just because endurance produces character. Notice the end, verse 4. Endurance produces character and character produces what? Hope. So there's the chain that we saw from verse 2. is now gone down. Through verse 4, it begins with hope and it ends with hope. That now then he, he can say like, that we rejoice in hope and we rejoice in hope in sufferings. It's a thing that is to stamp those who are justified. For, for Christians, for those who have faith in Jesus, our, our sufferings serve to produce more of that. More hope, not less hope. You would think that doesn't work together. That, that if my sufferings are going to squelch hope, But he says right here that actually suffering serves hope and produces more hope. That there's no way outside of that circle. If you're justified by faith, you you begin in hope and we end in hope here in verse 4. That this is the thing that it's producing and working for. You now have hope, that steadfast confidence. Sufferings make the destination of the glory of God even more clear as it comes into sharper image. It makes the end more desirable as we see more and more like this is what I can stand under so that that will be even more worth it. It increases confidence as the future that we hold, the, the glory of God, reaches further and more firmly into the present, which is why Paul can say we can rejoice in sufferings. Sufferings, they, they always produce something. Always produce something. And think of all the things that would not be ours That are ours because of suffering. There are not blind forces distorting reality for us and making us suffer. That's not what the picture is here. Suffering is formative, right? So someone is overlooking these things. Someone is is using these things in our lives. I, I love what John Newton. He knew a thing or two about suffering. And he said this, that he, speaking of God, will put his silver into the fire to purify it. But don't miss this. He sits by the furnace as a refiner to direct the process and to secure the end he has in view, that we may neither suffer too much or suffer in vain. Both of those, right? You're not suffering too much. It's producing something. It's always producing more hope. And you're not suffering in vain because, again, it's forming us in some way. Think, again, of of all that God is doing in the midst of suffering. The suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. It's produced so much. Think of the suffering of God. He was one who was delivered up for our trespasses. He was producing something. Now, as one who's raised for our justification, he has now justified many. We're, we're so thankful for the work that suffering has produced. Produced a people. But you can get to this point and say, okay, like we've, we've gone far enough. We rejoice in hope and rejoice in the hope Uh, uh, rejoice in our sufferings. But man, is Paul kind of out of his mind here. Is this kind of a fantasy? It sounds nice to write it on a page, but can this really be true in light of all that we see around us? Think of the Romans and all they would have seen around them, the atrocities brought on by the Roman Empire as they're seeing these things around them and all the immorality that's present outside and inside. And they think, I'm not supposed to rejoice in hope here and rejoice in hope in suffering here. Couldn't that set us up for disappointment? And perhaps with that question in mind, Paul writes verse 5. And hope, it doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope is no wishful thinking. It's sturdy. It's firm. It's well-grounded. And the well-grounded confidence of hope, the security of hope, is found in verse 5. Because... God's love has been poured into hearts by the Holy Spirit. Amen. It, there's all sorts of mysteries. What's the ministry of the Holy Spirit? What gifts does He give? What does He not give? Like Here's something that's really clear. The Holy Spirit has a ministry. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to pour the love of God into the hearts of those who are justified. What a great ministry, right? That the Holy Spirit does this. He imparts assurance of the love of God. If you have peace with God, the Holy Spirit is pouring the love of God into your heart. And it says poured. I love that word. Like fully experienced. It's not just given. Like no, it's poured into their hearts. God's love is made known, and nowhere it's made known in hearts. It's internally made known by the Holy Spirit. Also, is often said to be poured into the lives of believers, and it's been poured in internally, full experience, fully experienced in the heart by the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. What does this then confirm about all the sufferings that He's been talking about? But those sufferings, again, are not out-of-control sufferings. They're not things that are separate from God's love displayed and known in our lives. You can't say that I'm, I'm dealing with all these sufferings and I couldn't know the love of God. Actually, Paul says, rejoice in your sufferings, and we rejoice and hope knowing in those sufferings, knowing that the Holy Spirit's pouring the love of Christ into our hearts. Again, we need to know the right ministry here. This isn't us conjuring up good thoughts about the love of God. The ministry is the Spirit's. This is not something that is done. It is something that is received. We don't work our way into knowing God's love. It's poured into our hearts by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not an individual ministry. He doesn't say you need to do something to understand the love of God, although that's true too. What he says here is you're also just receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who is pouring the love of God into our hearts. So hope then doesn't put us to shame because God himself, in the person of the Spirit, is pouring love into the hearts of his people. He doesn't display his love here, which is good. He pours it. Christians, they don't go get it. The Holy Spirit pours it. And this ministry of the Holy Spirit makes it then possible to have this sure-founded hope. Makes it possible for us to even rejoice in hope and rejoice in hope in sufferings. Some, this morning, need hope. And so they need to to receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Receive the, the plentiful love of God as poured out by the Spirit. And whatever you're going through in life, Paul wants you to know the invitation to the benefits of justification by faith alone. He wants you to live in the fruit that has been achieved by your justification. He wants you to not only know the doctrine of justification by faith, but wants you to know that if you actually possess faith, that you live in light of it and live it out in your life, then you have peace with God. And that because you have peace with God, you're invited to rejoice in hope. And to rejoice in hope in sufferings. And church, we do this as people knowing that one has gone before us, don't we? Suffering, dying, raising. The path is through suffering. It's the path that our Lord went through himself. He displayed his love for us in his sufferings. And then sent his spirit to pour it in our hearts that we would know it. ...in ours. And if your hope is in Him... ...we want you to know the peace that you have with God. If your hope is not in Him... ...if you haven't placed your faith in Him... ...there's a war. You're not at peace with God. You're at enmity with God. And so the invitation is not to realize... ...the benefits of justification. The invitation is to be justified by faith... ...to put your trust fully in Jesus. But if you've put your trust fully in Jesus then what we do together is we take a meal of peace where God himself had set the table and extended out to sinners peace through his body and his blood. It's the Lord's Supper where we are reminded of Jesus' body that was broken so that we could have peace with God, where his blood was poured out so that we could be reconciled, forgiven, justified before a holy God. This is a meal of hope. Because as we sit in a fallen world, as fallen creatures, we are pronouncing that this death is also a death that didn't end in death but ended in resurrection. And that this resurrection isn't the end of the story either because this one that we are talking about and celebrating and having our faith in is the one who's also returning. And so this is a meal of hope because we have a destination and because we take it until that one who has already gone there in advance comes back and will finally and infu- fully take us to be with him. And if that's you, take this meal by faith. Look around and know that we, as a people of God, have a destination and that God will see that we get there. Let's pray together.
1: Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you that our story, Lord, begins with hope and ends with hope. And that we stand, Lord, on a firm foundation. That we stand in your grace on the solid rock that is our Savior, Christ Jesus. Father, help us to... Allow that truth to just be driven deeper into our hearts, Lord, as we live in a world that is directed and ruled, your your word says, by our enemy who hates you and hates us because we've been made in your image. And because, Lord, by your sovereign grace, we are reflecting your glory. God, help us to resist the temptation unbelief help us to hold on to the hope you've given us not as wishful thinking Lord but as as truth you've promised us Lord you've promised us a, a glorious ending you've given us everything we need to endure so God help us to be faithful as your word says that we will endure sufferings if we're yours and we live in, in a place where maybe those sufferings are not as, as obvious, they're not as severe as, as so many in this world have to endure, but Lord, we, we endure them. And yet we also try hard to, to evade them, Lord, because we're sinners and we seek our own comfort and God help us to be light shiners in this culture, help us to even choose suffering at times when, when it means your kingdom is benefited. God, we're, we're thankful for the work that you're, you're doing in our lives. We, we pray that, that that work would be evident, Lord, to those around us who both know you and who don't. That, Lord, in the end, the gospel would be proclaimed in how we live and what we say. And that your love, Father, as it is being poured into us by your spirit would just overflow and bring great glory to your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
2: Jesus said that if I thirst, I should Jesus